Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. All right, welcome to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're going over the last chapter in the book. Believe it or not, we've made it all the way through, and this is chapter 14, called A Mormon Christology. And last week we talked about the problems of the conventional ideas of Christology, and different problems with Christ being fully human and fully divine, and having two natures, and things of that sort. And so now we're going to talk about what the Christology would be from a Mormon point of view, given our scriptures and the revelations and current understandings, as well as some logical deductions, if you will. So, uh, to start out, I want to read probably just these first, yeah, we, let's do all three and then we can talk about them unless you want to stop me first. So, in the book it says, Mormonism's distinctive understanding of God derives from its commitment that Jesus the Christ was the preeminent revelation both of what God is and what humans are. Mormonism takes Jesus as the model of what it means to be truly and fully human and truly and fully divine. Insuperable problems for Christology are created by the conventional belief which posits an ontological dichotomy between the Creator and the created, which can never be bridged no matter how much progress humans make. Mormonism's belief that Godhood and humanity form a continuum, that divinity is fully mature humanity, allows it to avoid the most intractable logical problems confronting Christology. Yeah, and let's stop there for now. So, as a way of introduction, before I mean, we're going to go into each of these ideas more fully, but what do you kind of mean that in Mormonism, divinity is fully human, and what does that mean as compared to the conventional views? Well, in Mormonism what we have is a single species. We're the same kind of being as the gods. And therefore, there's not an ontological dichotomy. There's not an anthropological dichotomy. There's not a dichotomy of any sort to suggest that we couldn't be everything that they are, but it also follows that they are everything that we are in terms of our essential properties. So divinity is the full realization of human nature. Fully human nature is fully divine. And so what we're looking at in terms of Mormonism's commitments is very simple, and that is that Christ is the preeminent example of what we are called to be, what our potential is, what we are if we're properly perfected, if our nature is fulfilled. The natural man is only a part of what we are. The fully mature human nature is what Christ is. And Christ is the fullest expression of what it is to be a human being. That's impossible in the tradition, because we're two very different kinds of things in the tradition. And humanity could never fully embody the divine in the tradition. When we get to the third volume, we'll look at traditions that have a notion of theosis, primarily the Orthodox tradition. But even the Orthodox tradition and the notion of theosis there is a pale reflection of the assertion that humans can be like God when it comes to really being the same kind of thing. We're not the same kind of being, and we can't be the same kind of being. And this is a bridge that can't be golfed. 
And so when it comes to Christology, the bridge that can't be gulfed becomes gulfed by the recognition that divinity is fully mature humanity. And so we're not positing some kind of ontological distinction. We're not positing some kind of distinction of kind in terms of the logical kinds that we've been talking about throughout the book. All right, great. Let's move on here to this next quote. It says, Mormon scripture develops a Christology beginning with the Book of Mormon, at least in seed, which follows an identifiable trajectory through the Nauvoo period. I think that it is fair to say that the distinctive Mormon view of God as a result of its understanding that Jesus of Nazareth is a revelation of the nature of both God and man. Yeah, I mean, what, what we're saying is, is the distinctive Mormon that properly understood Jesus of Nazareth when he says, do the things that you've seen me do, be like me, be perfected like I am, it means it literally, not some kind of a metaphor that, well, we should be good in whatever way a human being could be good. We can't be good in a divine way. We should be knowledgeable in the way that a human being could be knowledgeable, but we certainly can't be knowledgeable in the way that a divine being is, that kind of thing. So when the Book of Mormon is talking about being like Christ, it, it, it's talking about a very full following of Christ as an exemplar in every respect. And the notion that we will be like God is quite expressed in the Book of Mormon. The notion that we will be perfected like God is seen in the fulfillment in Third Nephi when, when Christ says, Be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven, or even as I am perfect. So what he's showing is that I have perfected myself through the resurrection, and you're being commanded to do the same kind of thing and be the same kind of thing. So we already have this trajectory. Now, when I say a trajectory, there are different ways of reading Scripture. Mormon Scripture could have taken different trajectories. They could have been interpreted and, de and developed in different directions. But this direction is already present in the Book of Mormon. And let me give you a real example that is just amazing that most people miss. You have Christ showing himself as already a to-be-embodied being that is already so completely revealed as an embodied being that he shows his body to the brother of Jared thousands of years before his incarnation. And he already is in the form of a human being. He already is, and, and the message that he delivers to the brother of Jared is essentially, I'm like you and you're like me. And the potential to be like me is already present in you. This is a very complete revelation already of this kind of idea in the Book of Mormon, very early in Mormonism. Interesting. All right. And yeah, that's one of the questions that will come up in just a second here. So let's dive into this next section, which is distinctive doctrines of Mormon scripture. So these are distinctive things that you can find in either the Doctrine Covenants, Book of Mormon, or Pearl of Great Price, or I guess anything distinctive to Mormonism. The first is, Christ is the God of the Old Testament. He is Yahweh. The individual divine person who took on himself flesh is identical with Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament. I know this is a common view within Mormonism, and you don't have to go into it all the way, but I guess it does sort of come from the Book of Mormon, just because Christ declares when he comes down to the Nephites in 3rd Nephi that he was the one that was in the Old Testament, basically. Uh, but I've heard a theory, and I know you probably don't agree with this, but the theory that Joseph Smith's view early on was actually that of a Trinitarian, more, you know, understanding that Christ and Jesus are the same being, and it's possible that the Book of Mormon is just reflecting that 
because it's a little confusing to say that God has never directly interacted with humanity and it's always just been Jesus, or is that what the Mormon view is? I developed this more fully, of course, in the third volume when we talk about those kinds of issues, but the bottom line is that it's not appropriate to say that God the Father and Jesus Christ are the same being in Trinitarianism. They're distinct beings in Trinitarianism. The notion that they're the same being is modalism and was recognized by a heresy from very early in Christian tradition. So when it's asserted that the Book of Mormon is modalistic, I've actually treated that at some length in the third volume. But suffice it to say, take a text like Mosiah 15, where the idea is that the Father and the Son are one and that they share completely in what the other is because the Son subordinates his will to the Father's will so that in the expression of what is done, what is willed, it's the Father's will that is always being reflected because Christ subordinates his will to the Father's will. Now, it's very clear that there are two distinct wills. You can't subordinate a will to the Father's will unless you have a will to subordinate that's distinct from the Father's will. So it's clear that there are two distinct beings in in Mosiah 15. But in expression, with respect to us, there's only one will, and it's always the Father's will that is expressed. So in this sense, they become both the Father and the Son in anything that's done. And then I believe that a proper reading of the Book of Mormon will reflect that kind of unity of will and subordinationism. When I read people who argue for the modalistic interpretation of the Book of Mormon, they always acknowledge, oh, well, there are, there are other scriptures in the Book of Mormon that can't be squared with modalism. But, you know, there were scriptures in the Bible that can't really be squared with modalism either, so that doesn't count against uh, the view that, it's, that the Book of Mormon is modalistic. Well, that's about as nonsensical an argument as one can make. It's I get to disregard the contrary evidence because people previously disregarded contrary evidence. At the very least, they're saying it doesn't present a monolithic view. But I think properly interpreted, you have to read the Book of Mormon in light of the views that are expressed. And there may be different views in the Book of Mormon, but the reality as I see it is that every time it talks about the Father and the Son being one being, it talks about them being one being in the sense that the Son is subordinated to the Father, and so the Father is always the being whose glory, will, and honor are expressed. And that glory, will, and honor are given to him by the Son. It's clear that the Son is sent. It's clear that the Son is the one who comes down. It's clear that the Son is praying to the Father, not to himself and third Nephi. Nothing could be possibly clearer. So, those who want to read the Book of Mormon in that way are engaging in a hopeless destruction of the text, in my view, and are not really reflecting the evidence of the text. They're bending it to fit their preconceived view of what it must say because they don't understand the distinctions that are involved. This is one of the problems that I have with people who are involved in Mormon studies and don't have a thorough background in the development of doctrines in patristic thought and early medieval thought and later medieval thought. They don't really understand the kinds of distinctions that exist or that are being made and, and the options that are available. So they tend to read it as a chloroformed uniform text that just can't really be supported. I hope I'm not dismissing people too readily, but that's how I see the text. All right, and that makes sense. And another thing that I thought about while you were talking and just before is it's also pretty hard to argue that Joseph Smith believed that because if you believe his account, or at least later accounts of the first vision, he early on understood or claimed that God and Jesus were separate beings, and he witnessed them both side by side, and so that's at least consistent with that before he ever knew the Book of Mormon existed. 
Well, it's another argument for modalism that in the earliest version, in 1832, Joseph Smith mentions really seeing the Lord and doesn't make a distinction between the Father and the Son, really, and the expression of, I think both Father and Son are present and can be shown to be present, but it's not a, a prominent feature of the text that they're distinguished. And that's a part of the argument that early on the Book of Mormon reflected Joseph Smith's views of modalism, which later changed to be more of a binatarian view by the time the lectures on faith come around, and then move to full-fledged polytheism. I've addressed this very argument at some length in uh, an article entitled Revisioning the Mormon View of God. And so that's where I assess that, and then I assess it very completely in the third volume. So these are the kinds of questions that naturally arise, but they're not Christological questions, they're Trinitarian questions. Okay, fair enough. This is the only one I have a couple questions on. The rest we'll just go through. Since we're talking about Mormon thought, I understand that at least a school of thought put forth by, uh, I can't remember which prophet, but some prophet, it was that Christ, being Yahweh, was acting as sort of a royal vizier or a representative, and they define it as divine investiture of authority. So when he's talking and he says, I am the Father, then it's sort of like... I mean, we don't really have this concept in America especially, but in our day and age, but when a representative of a king or something would go out and they'd have the royal seal or whatever, when they speak, they literally did speak for the king, and they had just as much authority of the king because they had this authority with them. Do you find any credence in that point of view? I think that there are a number of reasons to believe that. The sent one is the one who arrives sent from the king, and usually there are two ways of doing this. He's either memorized the message word for word from the king as if though he's speaking first person from the king, or he's reading a message from the king in first person. And the people he's reading it to are largely illiterate and can't read and so don't understand what, you know, how that works. But in any event, he's speaking in the first person. So you get this messenger arriving and I King Saigon, great and powerful, deliver to thee this opportunity to avoid complete destruction. That kind of thing. So, you know, in the Syrian and in the early Semitic writings, we find this kind of, uh, you can call it monarchical investiture of authority, where the person is speaking literally as the king, representing the king. It was kind of a consistent view. Kingship was the most stable institution in the ancient world up through about the 1700s. And so the rules that went with a monarchical society tended in many respects to be the same and to be rigid and to not change. And uh, at least in the time that the scriptures, during the entire time the scriptures are written, there is this notion of divine messenger. In fact, you get it in Revelation. You get this angel who comes to John. He begins by saying, Behold, I'm Alpha and Omega. I am your Lord. And John falls down to worship him, and, and the angel says, look, I'm just a messenger like you. What are you doing? Get up, you idiot. And so we see, you know, a dramatic example of a divine messenger who comes and speaks just as if he's God in the first person. And the person who's receiving the revelation, John, is so confused by it. He doesn't realize that it's a, just a, an angel, a, a messenger that's sent from God and not God himself. And so we get this kind of confusion. In the third volume, I go into great length. There was this notion of Christ having been given the divine name Yahweh from the Father. And we have 
in the Gospel of John also the notion that it's the Father remains hidden. It's the Son who reveals the Father. It's a consistent strain throughout. There are sub-books in the, in the Gospel of John, but this seems to be one doctrine or practice that is involved throughout the entire book of John. So it's, this is a consistent practice, a consistent way of dealing with authority. All right, great. And yeah, it sounds like we'll get into this conversation again in the future. All right, um, let's breeze through these next few. These are just basically assertions that come from the Mormon scripture. And then, you know, you can say a little bit about them, but I think that's the only one I really had some questions on. Right, number two is, only an infinite God can atone for sins. And I know there's several scriptures citing that. Is there anything you need to say about that? Yeah, I mean, the notion that Jesus, who at the time that he's doing the atonement is not fully divine, is not a view that's available to Mormons, because our scriptures assert several times that only an infinite God could atone for sins, which means that in doing the atonement, Christ is acting as an infinite divine being, an infinite God, if you will, and as one in fulfilling the will of God. So there's no way to avoid the notion and this seems to be an ontological claim as well as not only the effects of the atonement are infinite, but the being who is doing the atonement has an attribute of infinity. That is, his capacity for suffering is unlimited. And that's exactly how the Mormon scriptures present it. Not only is God capable of suffering, he is capable of infinite suffering. He's capable of much greater suffering than humans are capable of. So not only is God passable, he's maximally passable. So what we have is a being who, in doing the atonement, is not acting merely as a human being. He's acting as a God. Now, this is important for a number of reasons, because in the tradition, at the time that Christ is doing the atonement, it appears that he's not really acting fully as God. And there's a problem. I'm not going to flesh it out at this point. I flesh it out again in Volume 3. I flesh it out also in a response to bridging the gulf when I'm looking at a book that was done by, I can't remember, Stephen, I'll have to go back and look. There was an evangelical and a Mormon. They're addressing Mormonism and the evangelical view of God. In any event, we have this incredible notion that Jesus, in pulling off the atonement, is capable of greater depth of feeling, passion, and compassion than a mere mortal would be. And we'll discuss if this creates a problem for him being both fully human and fully divine at the same moment, because he, he appears to have capacities that go well beyond what mortals have as a mortal. And so that's an issue that we have to discuss in terms of Christology, but it's one of the datum that we have to explain in terms of the Mormon scriptures. It's Stephen Robinson, by the way. Stephen Robinson is the Mormon scholar who I was talking about, and he co-wrote a book with an evangelical scholar that addressed that issue. All right. Um, number three, we've basically covered, so we probably don't need to say anything about it. It's the Son as God is capable of greater suffering than mere mortals. We talked about that just now. Another assertion from Mormon scriptures is, God condescends to become mortal. Yeah, another statement in the Book of Mormon where specifically there's an angel who is showing Nephi what his father saw in vision. And he asked him specifically, do you understand the condescension of God? And Nephi says, well, not really. And then the angel explains, well, it means that God himself becomes human. He comes down and is actually with human beings as a human being and suffers and participates fully in human life. 
and explains the condescension. So instead of using the term empties, as in the canonic theory of Christ, where the notion is that the divine being empties himself of the fullness of the divine properties, we have a notion that God condescends. Literally in Latin, in the condescendere would mean to come down and be with. And so that's what condescension is, and it's exactly what the angel explains. It doesn't mean that he condescends like he speaks to us condescendingly because he's so much greater, which is how I hear sometimes people explain that or discuss that. But this is a very important aspect of the Mormon view of Christ's relationship to divinity. He condescends from his full divinity to become mortal. All right, and then the next one is Christ is divine because of his relation of unity with the Father. We're going to get into that in depth, but can you just give an overview of why that is important to define? Yeah, because when we talk about divinity, we're not talking about the properties of an individual. We're talking about the properties of individuals only as they are in relationship with another particular being, the Father. And so it's like Christ in and of himself would not be fully divine because there's no such thing as a person who, who is fully divine all by him or herself. This is a relational property that we're talking about, and this becomes logically very important, that divinity is a relational property and not a property that one has a say or independently or in a way that is all by oneself. Other than God or even God without a relationship couldn't be God, is that what you're saying? Well, again, if we're talking about the individual identity of God, God could maintain his individual identity and be the individual that he is. Well, usually when we talk about God and we use it in this way, we're talking about a being that essentially has divine properties, and that's what we mean by God. And so when we're saying that this person is God, we're saying this person has certain properties that make this person fully divine. And to be fully divine in Mormon scripture means that this person is in a certain type of loving relationship of total unity with the Father. And because of this loving relationship of unity, the divine properties emerge in dependence on this relationship. So that when one leaves the fullness of the relationship, one sets aside or ceases to have a fullness of the divine properties. Let me give you an analogy. Hydrogen and oxygen have properties of water only when they're in a molecular unity. Outside of the molecular unity, they don't have properties of liquid. At room temperature, they have properties of a gas, and they have distinct properties. Oxygen and hydrogen have different properties, and they have none of the properties individually that they have when they're united in a molecular unity of H2O to be water. So there's something that emerges from the relationship that is not present in the individual properties as we would describe them. They have the capacity in relationship to create this kind of thing, but alone they could never be this thing. Oxygen never just simply turns into water. And so people have this kind of logical mistake of thinking, oh, what Mormons are saying is that you just grow up. You mature the way that your parents matured. You fly off to some part of the universe God hasn't quite gotten to yet, like leaving to go to college, where you then go establish to get married, and you establish your own household, and you become God by creating your independence and growing up to mature to be a divine being. That's a category mistake. It's a logical error. What we're actually saying is the opposite of that. That divinity arises as we learn to love one another by following the commandments that God has given to us. And the purpose for giving us the commandments is to teach us how to be gods. I don't know how to put that in any more plainly. <laughs> it's to teach us the divine way of life so that we can have the kind of relationship that will allow us to then participate in the divine 
properties in the same way that oxygen and hydrogen can give rise to water. But we're saying something more. Hydrogen and oxygen still remain hydrogen and oxygen, even when they're in a molecular unity in water. They create a molecule that otherwise wouldn't exist, but they still remain hydrogen and oxygen. When we become divine, not only do we give rise to something that is new in the way of divine properties, we participate in those divine properties. They infuse into us the spirit, the light, the power, the knowledge, the intelligence that is divine. And so we give rise to this divine glory, and then the divine glory, in turn, transforms us. It transforms our human bodies. It transforms our minds, as you know, the Philippians says. It transforms everything about us to be in the image of Christ. And so what we're talking about is a much completer participation in what emerges from this relationship. But it is essential to understand that in the Mormon view, divinity is not just growing up as an individual. You know, it's like if you just live long enough, you're going to turn into a god. That's not how it works. Becoming divine is dependent on learning to love and be in a relationship of such unity that the divine nature is expressed in the loving relationship itself. So in a sense, I'm saying literally God is love. Literally what gives rise to divinity is the loving relationship of persons. And that's why the scriptures are at pains to teach us how to be like Christ, and to be like Christ is to be loving in a way that gives rise to our full divinity. So to be perfected in Christ is to participate in, in the fullness of divinity. This is a very important part of the Mormon view of God. All right. And then I have kind of a question that arises from that, but it deals mainly with the next two. So let me read those two, and then I'll ask my question. The next two points are, humans become divine in the same way as Christ, and human, or divine nature, is uncreated. So, a question, a lot of the scriptures you cite and the way you describe it in the book is that Christ's divine power flowed basically from the Father. What you just said, it makes me think more your definition of Godhead or full divinity means a perfectly loving relationship between divine persons. And that way, the Father and the Son are divine, but also humans are invited into this divine nature the same way if we can enter into a perfectly loving relationship. But it seems under that definition to me that any, let's say, minimum of two, maximum of infinity, number of divine persons in this relationship would have the same, I don't know, it seems more like you're saying godhood is a way of being rather than a level that you grow to. It's a way of being in relationship with each other. But I'm just confused because you make it sound in this chapter that God himself is the source of all this, whereas you're saying there is no truly divine being without these relationships. And so why is the Father unique as opposed to just God being a community of divine persons? And I know you get into that in your third volume, and maybe this is way ahead. Yeah, I do get into this in the third volume. The reason is, is because that's the way it's revealed to be. The difference between us and the Father and the Son is that we made different choices than they did. It's not a difference in nature. It's not a difference in kind. It's not an ontological distinction. We could have been fully divine from all eternity if we had chosen to love perfectly from all eternity the same way that they did. The Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, as I read the scriptures, have chosen from all eternity to be in a perfectly loving relationship of indwelling unity. 
And so they have been divine from all eternity because of this choice. We could have made the same choice. We just didn't. It's a matter of free will. We freely chose to do something less than love. And if you look around you, you'll see that you and others around you continue to make choices to offer less than full love. (laughs) So we're here being schooled, if you will, so that we can learn to love each other so that in a divine way. And that means looking at how Christ and the Father relate to each other and how Christ related to us. Christ is the exemplar. He is the one who shows us what divine love, divine unity, divine relationship, and a fullness of human nature perfected in loving relationships to become fully divine looks like. The distinction between us and the Father and the Son is not one of kind, not one of ontological distinction. It's not one even of a level of progression, if you will, except in terms of there are different levels of light that define the nature of relationships that we have that are expressive of our relationship with God and with each other. The bottom line, however, is that the distinction is simply one of choice. It's one of free will. It's The distinction is that we haven't made the same choices that they have made, And it may be because we haven't fully grasped what it means to be completely and fully loving the way that they have. They've invited us into this relationship, and they have undertaken a plan to teach us how to be everything that they are by giving us experiences and challenges through which we can learn to love each other more perfectly. And, you know, we can get into this in great detail. In order to learn to love, that means that we are challenged to love people who may not be fully lovable. And in fact, it's precisely those that are the least lovable that have the most to teach us and from which we have most to learn regarding love. Therefore, enemy love becomes an essential part of the love command. Loving our enemies is the ultimate challenge and test to learn to love. It's easy to love people who are easy to love or people who are lovable. The real challenge comes when we love people who aren't lovable and who aren't easy to love. And so we've entered into a life and a world where we can undertake that. Some have more to learn about love than others. Some may have not anything to learn about love. They may have just other things to accomplish before they can enter into this relationship, such as having a body which gives a person much greater access and power to dimensions of reality than otherwise they would have because of the senses of the body and the way that we experience through the body. I have people all the time who simply make the mistake of saying, well, we can't be like God because God has been God from all eternity and we haven't. Remember last time I explained that Isaiah got the logical distinction wrong. The question isn't, was Christ created at some time? Because Christ could have been divine from all eternity if he's eternally begotten by the Father, but still be ontologically dependent on the Father for his existence, so he would have a different kind of being. So even though he's been divine and and eternally begotten by the Father from all eternity, That doesn't answer the question as to whether they're the same kind of being. It's the flip side here. The fact that we haven't chosen to be in a fully loving relationship from all eternity doesn't mean that we aren't the same kind of being and don't have the same kind of ontological status. It simply means that we made different choices. And when I hear people misconstrue my views to say, well, this means that God is a completely different kind of being because he's been God from all eternity— I simply say, from all eternity, God made different choices than we did. They're trying to teach us how to be like they are, because that's the way of happiness, the way of greatest joy, and the way of greatest fulfillment, and the way to fully fulfill what we actually are. And some people are just hell-bent on misconstruing it. I don't know why, but 
you know, I want to clarify that. Okay. And then one other thing before we move on, I just wanted to talk about different ideas and Mormon thought about number seven, where human divine nature is uncreated. So I would like to get your view on this, but I understand there's two views in Mormon thought that don't necessarily go together, and it does apply to Christology and Jesus, so I'll explain it. So one is from the Book of Abraham, basically where God is said to be some sort of intelligence that finds himself, and how we interpret that is different, but basically he's in the midst of other same kind of beings as him, and that he had something to teach us, basically. And so that's why he said, I'll make a plan, and we'll do this. And we are co-eternal with God. You know, we've existed the same eternity, you know, whatever that, you can't comprehend that, but we, we didn't come into being at some time. And then there's another view within Mormon thought where Christ, understood to be the firstborn or the only begotten, is that God somehow organized our intelligence into a higher level and that we are understood in this way to be literal children of God and that we were somehow spiritually birthed as opposed to eternally existing in our current state. And those are kind of important when it comes to Christ being begotten or what we mean by that. Yeah, what I want to say about that is that there are actually more than two views, but it kind of breaks down into two views where God took and organized pre-existing intelligent matter into personal intelligences like us, so we had a beginning in time as individuals, or the view that intelligences are eternal, which is what I believe is taught in the book of Abraham. The notion is that there was a process of pregnancy and spiritual birth, if you will, by which the spirit matter is organized into a spirit body. This is kind of the way that B.H. Roberts put it together. It's called the tripartite view, as opposed to Orson Pratt's view that there was just this intelligent matter which kind of got organized into a spirit without you know, having a distinction. You go straight from being this spirit matter, if you will, to being an individual, and you're organized from this spirit matter. If we came into being as individuals at any point in time, then we have an ontological status that is different than God's, because God as an individual is ontologically backwardly eternal without creation. I believe the book of Abraham and Joseph Smith taught that that's the case. I don't believe that Joseph Smith had expressed the notion of this kind of spiritual birth, anticipating that it would be done through a spiritual female, or that this kind of spirit birth occurred because there was a mother in heaven. In fact, I don't believe that he ever explicitly taught that there was a mother in heaven. And so these are views that emerged later. It's demonstrable that we can't find anything, or at least haven't found anything, where Joseph Smith taught about a divine mother in heaven or spiritual birth through a divine mother in heaven. These are later notions, and they're part of the ideas that grew up around Brigham Young, and I believe that they were more fully fleshed out by Brigham Young in what I would call a very anthropomorphic theology of divine beings and an eternal string of beings, if you will, an eternal regression of but these are Brigham Young's ideas, and very early on, these became inextricably connected with the Adam-God view as well. I'm not going to get into all of that. It's a very large discussion. But uh, suffice it to say, I think that the scriptural view in the book of Abraham is that intelligences, that is what we are in essence in our individual identity, we would call it an individual essence. The Latin term is a hexaity which means the essence of what is the identity of an individual is that the person that they are. 
is backwardly eternal and uncreated also for human beings, not just for God. And so this is a radical idea in Christian thought. It's so radical that there may not be another person who has expressed it as clearly and plainly as Joseph Smith. There are a lot of Christians who had a view of pre-existence. There are a lot of different cultures that had at least some notion of pre-existence. Terrell Gibbons has done a book on pre-existence. I'm fairly critical of it because I don't think he makes the kinds of distinctions to understand the views that he's actually discussing. And I don't think he understands the views that he's discussing and fails to make the kinds of distinctions that are necessary to distinguish those views from the Mormon view and to actually put them into an appropriate context. Having said that, it's still important to understand that just simply the notion of pre-existence in and of itself is not sufficient. It's not just pre-existence. It's the notion of uncreated individual identity of persons that is what's at issue here. It's a radical view, but it's also one of the most powerful views, most powerful beliefs expressed by Joseph Smith that I believe gives Mormonism its character and, let me add, that I believe is essential to allowing it to express a coherent Christology and make sense of Christology without all of the trappings of the Christological problems that grew up in the tradition. All right, great. And the next section we're going to move to is called a Modified Canonic Theory of Christology. And Jacob's going to take that one. So with this modified view, this new view shares the concept with the radical theory that Christ did not possess the fullness of the divine properties at the time he initiated his mortal experience. It also shares with the standard kenosis theory that the concept that Christ possessed all the essential properties of divinity while mortal. So uh, if you go a little bit into what this modified canonic theory of Christology is. Sure. We have the scripture in DNC 93 that says that Christ grew grace to grace. Essentially what it's saying, uh, also we have the notion, it's present somewhat in Hebrews and Alma 7, that Christ is learning through his experience how to be compassionate, fully compassionate with human beings who have our kind of experiences. And so what we see is a concept that Christ has become human and in doing so has given up a fullness of some of the divine attributes. He still possesses the attributes, but in a much modified way. They're not the full expression of the attributes. They're a human expression of the attributes in the sense that they're limited now. So we have Christ becoming human and learning by the things that he experiences, growing in his abilities, growing up, if you will, as a human being. And so what we have to say for the Mormon view is that some of the essential properties of divinity are possessed in a relative or potential degree and not completely. So I want to introduce the notion of a relative or potential property as opposed to one that is completely realized. Now, in the tradition, God's properties are all completely realized. Every perfection that God has, he's always had, and they can't get any better, they can't grow. They're the apex of any of these perfections. But when we're talking about Christ having knowledge, he had a human range of knowledge. He still had knowledge. He had the attribute of having knowledge. But it's a human range of knowledge, not a divine range of knowledge. He has the divine attribute of power, but it is limited in its expression. He also has a sense of eminence. In other words, he knows things beyond himself. He knows when he's touched by a woman who suffers from an illness, and he knows that virtue's gone out of him. He has the sense of the world beyond him, but it's much more limited than God's total access to the total universe, if you will. So what we see is Christ maturing in his humanity and growing in his relationship with the Father as well. 
so that he is learning once again to fully embody the fullness of the spirit, intelligence, light, and power of the Father as a human being so that his power and knowledge grows, his ability to influence things grows. So we see Christ having a, a much more complete expression of these than is generally present in human beings. He heals people all the time. He is able to cast out evil spirits. He is, you know, something that we now probably explain in, in psychiatric terms, but the bottom line is, is he has this power to heal people. He has this power to do things beyond himself. In fact, he can do it and say, here, take my handkerchief, go to this person or, or just go to them, and they'll be healed, and he can heal at a distance. So what we see is a Christ who is human but growing in his expression of the divine attributes, learning, in essence, how to be both human and God, and truly learning from his experience. He's truly learning how to be God and how to be human through his mortal life. This is a part of the Mormon Christology. Okay. And then you go quite a bit into DNC 88 and through a number of verses, and we can share those verses on the blog so that we don't go through them each individually here. That might be a little too time consuming. But the implication of the verses in DNC 88 is that divinity is communicable to humans. Yeah, the notion is, is there's this essence of the divine light. Now, we could call it divine intelligence, divine power, divine glory, call it what you will. There's this participation in the glory and the light of God. And to the extent that we accept the light of God into our being, our being is given life by an additional new power that changes it, it transforms us. And so to the extent we participate in this light of of God, it transforms our being to be more like God and to have a fuller expression of the divine attributes. So, for instance, if I have a greater share of the divine light, I may be able to exercise greater divine power to heal people. I may be able to exercise greater divine power to calm storms. I may be able to know things that otherwise wouldn't be knowable. I may know the thoughts of other people. And so, what I have is, is through this light, I participate in the very datum of the divine experience. Now, this is a process way of thinking, so let me explain what I have in mind here. There's a datum of divine experience. God experiences everything, and this is, this is important. It's, this is a technical definition. To be fully divine is to participate immediately in all reality, to both be acted upon and to act upon all reality without mediator. And so what DNC 88 is, I believe, expressing is that any being that has this complete relationship with the universe, where it, this being is found in and through all things and acts upon and is acted upon immediately by all things, is fully divine. So the easiest way to express this is in terms of process thought, where the influence of God is immediately present to every reality, and God is acted upon and influenced by every reality. Every reality is interrelated and shares the experience. And so God has this divine experience, and the datum of divine experience is shared. So let me give another analogy. Say that we can implant a chip into your brain so that you and I both have the very same range of knowledge. What you experience, I experience. Everything you see, I see. And everything I see, you see. Everything I think you're aware of, everything you think I'm aware of, and I think, you know, we're beginning to express a, a kind of unity, but we begin to see what we have as a mind meld, where everything that you experience, the datum of your experience is also a datum of my experience. 
there's nothing that you can experience that I'm not aware of and don't fully participate in. And that's what God is offering as I read DNC 88. He's offering the, the very datum of his experience to be embodied into us and the power of his light and glory to vivify and give life to our bodies and to be a part of our being. And so we are being made divine because we participate in the divine light through being in relationship with God. And so what happens when we enter into this kind of divine relationship, as I read DNC 88, is that the divine intelligence, spirit, light, power, knowledge, these are all interchangeable terms, are shared fully with us. And to the extent that we participate in them, we participate in the divine knowledge so that we, we know what God knows. We participate in divine power so that we do what God does. We participate in the divine purpose so that what he purposes, we purpose. It quickly follows that we have kind of a unity that arises in participating in divinity. So I give this kind of analogy of a, of a chip that allows us to share fully the datum of our experience with each other. Well, Christ has a way of sharing with us immediately the datum of his experience and the influence of his spirit. And it uses another term, the spirit quickens us. This is an old English term, an old English law. The quickening was the moment when the fetus had life. It took its first breath. Quickening is the moment that life occurs. So when we're quickened, we're given life by something. And, and the notion is, is that we participate in the very power that the powers the divine life, the very power that is the essence of what it is to be God. In other words, it's another way of saying this is that we participate in eternal life, which is to participate in God life. We participate fully in the divine life. So we're getting into very heavy notions, and I say heavy by that, I mean they're, they're dense notions that require a great deal of unpacking and discussion to grasp what it is that's being expressed here. And there's so much being expressed in a very few words that a person could write a 500-page book, book about it. And once again, someone did. Well, not, not just about that, but it, it definitely is a prominent part, especially moving on to your, your second and definitely your third book. Right. Moving on, though, part of the son's divinity uh, arising from his relationship with the father in a Mormon Christology, that would necessarily imply a particular view of the Godhead, uh, particularly that uh, a Christology that defines the relationship between the father and the son. And, and you come up with six particular aspects that need to be delved into a little bit deeper. And we don't need to go into these in, in great detail, but if there's anything in particular, the first part is that they are distinct persons. Yeah, it's essential to realize that they're not identical. There is a distinct individuality and individual personality that differ for the Father and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, by the way. They're, they're distinct. When I say they're distinct, I don't mean they're separate. Being separate is different than being distinct. So they're one in the sense that they participate in the indwelling unity of presence, glory, oneness of mind, oneness of purpose, oneness of power, oneness of intent with each other. And so they share, even though they're distinct, their distinction is defined also by their shared unity. So each of the three divine persons is a distinct person in the way that we moderns use the sense, the word person. In the Trinitarian discussions and the philosophy of religion in the past three decades, people have wanted to monkey around with what it means to be a person. But I'm using the term person as we use it in the semantic range of the English language today. 
It means to be an individual. Now, what it doesn't mean is to be a, a particular package of rights that can be expressed even against the government and against each other. That notion of rights isn't essential to my notion. Mm-hmm. But what we mean by a person is essentially what we mean when we're talking about persons in common vernacular. And so in the fullest modern sense of the word, they have distinct cognitive and conative personality. Cognitive has to do with the range of knowledge and mental experience. Conative has to do with emotions and sharing fully in the emotions and experience of another person. They have distinct cognitive and conative personality. Let me follow this up. It's important to recognize that when we talk about distinct personality, we also mean they have a distinct self-consciousness. The son is aware of being the son. He's not aware of being the father. Each divine person is a distinct center of self-consciousness. So the son has a range of self-consciousness that is distinct from the self-consciousness of the father, even though they fully share in the mental experiences of each other. Christ is aware that he has a history and a will that is distinct from his father's. Even though he has a distinct will, he has decided, he has willed, to subordinate his will to the Father so that in expression there's only one will. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have a distinct self-consciousness and a, and a distinct individual will. The second part is there's a loving dependence and ontological independence. This is important. They are dependent on each other for the expression of the divine properties. As I said before, the divine properties emerge in dependence on the loving relationship that the divine persons have for one another, and we have been invited into this relationship to share fully in these divine properties. However, they are not dependent on each other for their existence as individuals. It happens to be the case that each individual has existed as that individual from all eternity in terms of past eternity. And so the Son is not created as the Son by the Father. In other words, the Son isn't eternally begotten by the Father in the sense that he wouldn't exist if the Father didn't will his existence. He has existence independent of the Father, and the Father didn't create him. There's no creation about the existence of an intelligence, to use the phrase from the book of Abraham. And it's the same for all of us. It's the same for the Son. So we are ontologically, that is, What causes us to exist is independent from one another. And what causes us to exist is that we have a property of self-existence. We are the explanation of our existence in terms of the fact that we exist. I don't depend on the Father for existence as an individual. I do depend on the Father for my existence as a human being in this world, because I couldn't be this kind of being in this world without God's action. But I would therefore be an unembodied intelligence and I would still exist. Now, the kicker, God can't cause an intelligence to cease to exist. It exists independently, and there's there not a, neither is there, there's no creation about it, but there's also no destruction about it. We are stuck with existence. It makes us, and there are papers that have been written about this, it makes us the quintessential existentialists. That is, we weren't created with a prayer plan in mind for us. Our essence does not precede our existence, (laughs) is a way that we would say this in existential thought. Our existence precedes and is our essence. And so we're thrown into reality, as you will, in the sense that we can't avoid the fact that we exist. There is no eternal suicide. We can't avoid existence. And so we have this notion that we're stuck with existence. 
we're stuck with our freedom because the essence of an intelligence is the ability to make choices and to choose in a free sense. And we're stuck with this freedom. We're accountable for it. We can't avoid it. And so we become, in a sense, the ultimate existentialist in the terms of Jean-Paul Sartre, but more particularly in terms of Soren Kierkegaard. We are stuck with our individuality, our individuality, our freedom, and our existence. And it's just a fact we've got to deal with. All right. The next one is divinity itself. Yeah, so... When we're talking about divinity, we're talking about godhood, which I define as the immutable set of essential properties necessary to be divine. Now, you might notice I'm using the term in the definition, so that's not really expressive. But what I'm saying is there's a set of essential properties which which are essential to be divine. And we've talked about what those properties are. So there's only one godhood or divine essence. So in terms of the divine essence, it isn't like there are lots of different divine essences. There's one divine essence. There's one set of great-making properties that are severally necessary and jointly sufficient for their possessor to be divine. And each of the divine persons has this essence, though none is simply identical with it. In other words, I'm rejecting the property of simplicity in terms of, div- of divine essence and divine properties. So we possess this essence in the sense that we exist, and then we possess the essence of what it is to be the individual that we are and the kind of thing that we are. But we're not simply identical with this essence, though we couldn't exist without it. That's what, you know, divinity is that set of great-making properties that are necessary and sufficient to say that we're divine. And then what we would do and what I've been doing throughout the volume is kind of talking about what those properties are. So again, it's... uh... Each of the divine persons has this essence, but they're not identical with it. Right. We've talked about the doctrine of divine simplicity. It's a, it's a difficult doctrine at best. But we're, what we don't say is existence is our essence in the sense that we do essentially exist. It's what it means to be an intelligence is to exist. But the, what I would rather say is that the additional properties supervene on an existing individual It's not the case that everything that we are is essentially, for instance, we make free choices. If everything that we were were essential to our existence, there would be no freedom because every choice we made would be dictated by the thing that we are. And so we wouldn't have any freedom. That's a a very involved discussion, but it's a part of the reason to deny the doctrine of divine simplicity with respect to individual essences of divine persons. Okay. Number four, then, is the indwelling unity of the divine persons. Okay, so there are a lot of different ways to talk about divine unity. The coherence is one of the terms that I I would accept from the tradition without the baggage from the tradition. So what, what I want to say is that there are divine persons who are distinct but not separate. They depend on each other, and, and so here's why they're not separate. In the divine life, because they share every datum, they share a common mind, if you will, a common knowledge and a common power. So there's no alienation, there's no isolation or insulation or secretive or aloneness among the divine persons. It's not possible for a divine person to be lonely because they can never possibly be all alone. It's not possible for a divine person to um, be secretive because your thoughts are exposed to the other divine persons. It's not possible for there to be alienation as a divine person because we're in the most complete loving relationship possible as divine persons. And so these are 
experiences that we have as human beings, every one of us feels alienated at times. We feel insulated from others. We feel alone and, and we maintain secrets. It's a part of what it is to be human in terms of, of our mortal life now. But then in divine life, none of these exist. Now, this is an important recognition, and here's why. Christ, as a divine person, could not experience alienation. He couldn't experience insulation. He couldn't experience what it is to be alone. So somebody may say, well, but he participates in our experiences of what it is to be alone, and so he knows what it is to be alone. But in order to participate in our experience of being alone, he has to be with us. And so by definition, we're not alone. (laughs) He's not alone. He doesn't experience aloneness. He experiences being with us in our experience of aloneness. And it's a very different experience. It's kind of like the distinction between, for instance, if I'm a bank, somebody pulls a gun and I I fear for my life. God knows that I fear for my life, but it doesn't entail that God fears for his life (laughs) just Mm -hmm. because I do. And so these are things that, that a divine person cannot know experientially. In order to have these experiences and this knowledge, it's necessary to become mortal. It's also important to say that they interpenetrate one another. In essence, they have an interpenetrating power and light and awareness where the scriptures actually say that they are in one another. The interpenetrating individuality of one is also in the other, and they share perfectly in this sense. Uh, And they also somehow spiritually extend their personal presence to dwell in each other and thus become one in each other. So, in essence, the datum of their experience, the datum of their power and light, it's like the light of the sun. The photons during the day are shooting through me all the time. They're going right through me. They're part of. They're right inside of me. I just don't know it. They're they're actually giving life to plants and and giving. You know, we couldn't exist without the, the light being available to us either. But we're not aware of it. But it's actually in us in a sense. Um, but it's important to recognize that divine persons, as one Godhead, cannot experience, they can't have experiential knowledge of alienation and separation and aloneness. In order to have those experiences, they have to leave the interpenetrating unity of the Godhead to become mortal. That's part of the reason that they may desire to become mortal is so that they can develop and progress in this kind of knowledge, this experiential knowledge, that they can't have as members of one Godhead. And logically, they can't have it. It's a, lo- it's a logical limitation that if one is in the most completely loving relationship possible, one can't also experience alienation, isolation, and aloneness. All right. And I think talking about that oneness of the Godhead um, leads right ne- into number five, uh, which is the monotheism. And I think this is really important to understand because a lot of people will, will charge that Mormonism it, it believes in a plurality of gods, therefore they're it can't be monotheistic in any sense of the word. It's definitely polytheistic with the plurality of gods. And so going to, to monotheism and how we understand that. Yeah, so we use God in two different ways. One is to say that we use the designator God to refer to the Godhead. And, and the way I speak of the Godhead, it's an emergent unity on a new level of existence that's different from individual existence on a logical level. So it's a logical category mistake to say that the individual divine persons are the same thing as the one God in the same way that it's a category mistake to say that oxygen and hydrogen are simply the same thing as water or they're the same thing as just one molecule. They're not. They're distinct. (laughs) 
they exist on different levels of reality and different levels of organization and properties emerge because of their relationship. The unity of the Godhead is so complete that the distinct divine persons have the same mind in the sense that what one divine person knows, the others know. What one divine person wills, the others will. What I want to say is this unity is so powerful that when we speak of the divine power governing the universe, we're speaking of a single divine power governing the universe instead of three or a gazillion, if we include all the children of God in the Godhead, because we've been invited into the Godhead. So it logically follows that the divine persons can only express their divine properties when they're in relationship, and that there's a one God in the sense that there's only one divine power governing the universe. That's a form of monotheism. But we also want to say that it logically follows that the divine persons can't exercise power in isolation from one another. So if I were to leave the Godhead, I would, in essence, be leaving behind the fullness of the divine power. I'd no longer be omnipotent as an individual. In other words, the divine property of the fullness of divine power inheres in the divine relationship of the Godhead and not in, in any one individual. So when Christ becomes human, he's not fully omnipotent, he's not fully omniscient in, in the sense that I've discussed them, because he has left the unity of the Godhead and therefore doesn't participate fully in the divine experience and the divine power and light. All right, and one last thing that you put in the book there is that understanding this sense of monotheism is that it follows that if anyone leaves this perfect relationship of perfect love and unity, that there is necessarily only one sovereign of the universe. Yeah, so, and I get into this, this is an argument that I don't want to get into in great detail, but the question is, could there be more than one omnipotent being? And if they could, wouldn't one omnipotent being be able to frustrate the will of the other not omnipotent being, which is an argument to say that logically there can only be one omnipotent being. What I want to say is that of logical necessity, there can only be one omnipotent being, because if the son, for instance, decided that he wasn't going to follow the will of the father, he would necessarily be severing the unity that they enjoy, which makes them divine, and therefore he would cease to have the property of divine power Therefore, he couldn't exercise his will in an all-powerful way in contradiction to the Father. It follows logically from what I've said that there can only be one all-powerful unity in the universe, and to be outside of that unity is to be less than all-powerful. Therefore, there can only be one omnipotent being. Therefore, there can't be a contradiction in the power of one omnipotent being trying to defeat another omnipotent being. Given the way that I've elucidated the relationship with Godhead and divinity, there is only one divine power governing the universe, and there couldn't be more. All right. Uh, that moves us to number six, which is apotheosis, or the way humans may become gods. I've used a, a term that was most commonly used by the Romans and the Greeks to express the way that humans become divine. It's a misuse, probably, but I did that to distinguish it from the notion of theosis adopted in Orthodox Christianity. But the Mormon view is neither apotheosis nor is it theosis as it's used in the tradition. So what we are saying is that humans share in the very same divinity as the divine person's true grace. And it is a grace by the divine love that is given as a gift to become one with the divine persons in the same sense that they are one with each other. However, and this is important, humans are eternally subordinate to and dependent on their relationship of loving unity with the divine persons for their status of gods. 
but it's not different for any of the divine persons of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost either. They're also dependent on that loving relationship. So by acting as one Godhead, or by acting as one with the Godhead, deified humans share fully in the godly attributes of knowledge, power, and glory of God. And so I don't want to say apotheosis is really an individualistic notion of humans becoming divine. But I don't want to adopt the notion of theosis either, which is really humans not really becoming divine, but expressing the divine properties to the extent proper for humans. What I really want to say is, given this view that we've been invited into the Godhead, and that when we fully accept the invitation to become one in each other in the Godhead, we will fully participate in the divine glory, power, and knowledge, we become fully divine. So this is a very distinct notion of Godhood. This is the Mormon notion of becoming gods of theosis. And it's a very distinct notion, one that is fairly unique, but one that is extremely powerful, and one that is necessary to the further discussion of a coherent Christology. So I call my view that of emergent divinity. We can talk about what it means to be emergent, but I already have with the analogy to hydrogen and oxygen in a sense. But what we have is an emergent social trinity. There are truly distinct divine persons who exist in a relationship of love, and it requires their distinction. It requires their distinctness to express love for one another by freely choosing to love one another and having the choice not to love one another were they so freely to choose and free to choose not to be in the divine relationship. So these are all important aspects of the Mormon view, which distinguish it both in its notion from the Godhead, but also as a necessary concomitant of what it means for a person to become divine, and certainly is necessary background to discussing a Mormon Christology. Okay. And you brought up something, and I think you go a little bit deeper into it later in the chapter, because you seem to distinguish that God the Father is not dependent power-wise on the Son or the Holy Ghost, but he is dependent in that he has to be in the perfect loving relation in order to be divine whereas the Son and the Holy Ghost are dependent on the Father both in terms of power and in their divinity. Am I understanding that correctly? Or No, the Father also is dependent on the loving relationship for the divine power and the divine knowledge. It simply is the case that the Father, it's a relationship, the Scriptures define it as a relationship with the Father in perfect loving unity that gives rise to the attributes of divinity, and all honor goes to the Father. Christ taught us to honor the Father. So the Father has a certain priority and preeminence in the scriptural terms, as taught by Jesus himself. But this priority is one of honor and glory and not an ontological priority. And it's not a priority in terms of divine power or divine knowledge, so that he has these in a way that we don't and can never have. He also has these in dependence on the loving relationship. And this becomes important for discussing the third volume, because God the Father became human at one point and had a limited range of knowledge and experience, so that he could learn from his experience what it means to be human. And it's essential that God the Father become human at some point in order to have this kind of individual experiential knowledge, because there's no other way to get experiential knowledge except through experience, and no other way to get individual experience except for individually. And so it's essential that the Father be able to leave behind the fullness of the Godhead in Mormon thought, because Joseph Smith taught that just as the Son became human, at a specific time on a certain planet, so did the Father. And the Father is not distinct from the Son in terms of his experience, and Joseph Smith also taught that someday the Holy Ghost will do the same. But I get into that more in the third volume. I guess the question still remains for me then, for them to all be divine, and they've been divine 
you know, for all time, what is it that has the father eternally being higher in, in terms of honor than the son and the Holy Ghost? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question to ask, but I don't know that, that we have a full or complete answer to that, except that it seems to be the Father who is the source and fount of divinity in the sense that he's the one who invited Christ into a relationship and Christ accepted. And so, in this type of logical priority, the Father is the first. It's not the case that the Son made an offer to the Father to be in a relationship and the Father accepted. It's the other way around. So there, in terms of this relationship, the author of the relationship is the Father. The source of the divine glory is the offer of the loving relationship of the Father to the Son, accepted by the Son, and now one that they've extended to us to say, well, come to be in unity with us as well. Okay. I'm still trying to wrap my head around because that relationship has always existed, right? There's no beginning, no ending to it. So how could there ever be a time when there was first an offer made or someone was making the offer before the other one? was accepting there's never a time when there wasn't a time before so however far back you go in every single moment that the decision could be made to offer the loving relationship the father has done it and in every moment when the decision could be made to accept it the son has has made that decision now in every moment for all eternity that decision has been made it follows that for an eternity they've made the decision but it's a decision made in every moment of eternity There just is no logical impediment to the possibility of making a decision in every moment of eternity. Some people think, oh, there can't be this eternal regress, but that's false. There is no argument to show that this involves vicious regress that isn't logically possible. Every moment that they could make the decision they did, they've made that decision in every moment of eternity for all eternity. You know, that's the explanation. Okay. Sounded like you were about to say, it's that simple, but... It's really not simple, but that is the explanation. Well, it's, it's not simple to us because our experience as mortals is limited in terms of a beginning and an ending. Our brains only know a beginning and an ending, and our experience as humans, it has a beginning and an end. And so for us to wrap our heads around it and using our, our brains, which will never know eternity, is very difficult. Wrapping our heads around eternity and an eternal time is difficult, but that doesn't mean that there's a logical incoherence in asserting it. It just means it's hard to understand, which is a very different kind of a problem. Right, right. I have a question about, so can you at least, would you just say that that's sort of the best that we can do to explain it? The way I understand a decision is obviously there has to be a time when there wasn't that in order for there to be a decision, because if it's always just been that way, then there is no decision. That's just essential to the way that they are, essentially. The reality is, I mean, you were married yesterday, right? Correct. And you were married the day before. Uh-huh. But there was a time when I got married. Yeah, but assume that in every moment of your eternal existence, you made the same decision. I don't find that a good metaphor because that did have a beginning. It does have, but yesterday you made the decision to love today. That's the point. You made the decision yesterday and you made it again today. You can make it in every moment that you've been married. And it doesn't mean that because it had a beginning, it has to have an ending. So I don't have good examples of eternal things where we've made the decision. I know, that's what I'm saying. Could we just say that that's at least the best we can do to understand it? And maybe, I mean, I don't like appealing to mystery when we don't have to, but... (laughs) But it's not mystery. It's not mystery. It's perfectly understandable to assert that there's been an eternity, and in each moment of eternity, we freely made a decision. It's perfectly logically consistent, and I don't think it's all that hard either. 
honestly. I mean, okay. I'm just saying. I'm just saying the very meaning of decision means that there was a choice and it wasn't already made until you made a decision. Yeah, but there's been an eternity of moments in which to make the choice. All right. Well, we'll just agree on that one for the moment. <laughs> So what is it you're asserting that is there some logical argument you want to make that that's difficult or do you just want to say that's difficult for me because I don't have an experience of making decisions for an eternity? I guess it's more semantic. I'm just saying that logically the term decision entails within its definition that there has to be a time before the decision was made. Elsewise, there would be no decision. Well, that's why I pointed out you made a decision to be married yesterday and you made a decision to be married also the day before. It's the same decision. It doesn't mean that it, you didn't decide. It's different because I made a commitment, I'd say, in my relationship, and each day I remain to commit within this relationship. But there was a time when the commitment had to be made initially. And the, the reason this is important, because to Jacob's question, the only thing that's separating the father and the son is you say he offered him. But if there is no beginning, then they're both offering it to each other, which is beautiful, but I don't see where the Father can be higher than the Son in that. Well, it's because that's the way Christ defined the relationship and when he talks about his Father. I mean, Jesus is the one who's teaching us about his relationship with his Father, and what he's saying is that we love because we were loved first. I think I'm quoting a scripture in First John there. So, I mean, that's the priority, and it doesn't have to be a temporal priority. It could be a merely logical priority, if that's how you want to talk about it, because when we're talking about eternity, it is a merely logical priority, but it's still a priority. But you're thinking in terms of a temporal priority, which is a category mistake. So when we're talking about a logical priority, we don't have to have a time in which the priority obtains, because it's a logical priority merely and not also a temporal priority. Okay. And, and the way you worded something, I, want, I just want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly. You said that at every time that they were able to make the decision, they made the decision. Does that mean there's right. a time when they weren't able to make the decision? Or is this just a decision? No, it doesn't entail that at all. They've always been able to make the decision, and they always made the decision to love when they were able to do so. Okay. And in every moment of eternal existence, they were able to love, and that's the decision that they've made. They're also able to not love, by the way. They freely choose to love, and so to be free, they have to have the opportunity also to choose to not love, but they have made the decision. And it's because they're so intelligent, they see that making the decision to love is by far and away the better part, because it leads to, to joy and happiness and fulfills the kind of beings that we are. And so any intelligent being that had the opportunity to make that decision would make that decision in every moment. The difference between us and them is that sometimes we're stupid. It's stupid to choose not to love. It's the highest stupidity of the greatest order to choose not to love when we can, because it leads to misery. And we always experience misery when we choose not to fully love. It's just the way that it is. So why would we choose to be miserable? That's the question. Why are we stupid? They're not. All right. One other question relating to this issue before you can sum it up, Jacob, in the end. Sorry, just right here, I think it makes more sense. So when we talk about Godhead, the way you're talking about it here, and I, again, I'm, we might be getting ahead of ourselves, but it sounds, at least the way you're defining it, that we as humans will eventually, we're being invited to participate in this relationship. Are we going to be understood to be on the same level or speak, participate fully in this? Yeah, 
in the I, I just there's there's not it's not limited to three is my question is it limited to these three beings or is it open to infinite number of however many humans there are the Godhead is the Father Son and the Holy Ghost but we will share fully in the relationship and everything that they are so again it's a logical priority that's the way that's what the Godhead is because these three people from all eternity have made the decision to love each other we did but. The offers are already been made to us to join this loving relationship. If we had the capacity to choose to fully love in every moment, and we made that choice, then we would be able to be fully divine. There are two things that keep us from being fully divine. We, we're stupid, and we have a lot to learn in terms of our experiential knowledge. Okay, Now, that doesn't mean that once we're accepted into the relationship, that our growth in love is over. We continue to learn from experiential knowledge how to have a more perfect union of love. We continue to grow. There's a progression, and it's eternal progression. So I don't want you to think in terms of being in the relationship. I've made the relationship. Now I'm, I have nothing further to accomplish, learn, or know. That's not the way it works. <laughs> There's always growth in terms of experiential knowledge and having further experiences and, and learning how to love more perfectly. This is not like the perfect score of 18 on a golf course. It's more like the greatest possible integer. There's no upper limit. And so when we're talking about the participation in the divine relationship, the divine relationship is a dynamic one, a dynamic progression and growth. And so we are invited in this relationship, but because of Christ's experiences in Gethsemane and in the resurrection, he opened up new possibilities of existence that I don't believe had ever existed before. That's, he'd accomplished something really remarkable. And so there was this progression that occurred because of what Christ was able to accomplish. But we've been invited to fully love each other from all eternity. It's simply that the ability to love is not a static realization that, oh, now I have perfect love. Love is a dynamic relationship of being with other people and learning to be with them and continuing to be and growing together. To love is not to be in a static relationship. Love is not like a marriage ceremony. Love is like growing old together. It's something that you do every single day, and it involves your entire existence in life. And it's not accomplished in just one moment or in just one ceremony. When people speak in terms of marriage as if, though, they, you know, well, we got married, we're there, they don't understand what marriage is. And I, I tend to believe that those kind of marriages fail for that reason. Oh, there's just one other quick question. So when we're accepted into this relationship, at some point, do we become part of the Godhead, or is the Godhead always separate and we're just in a relationship with the Godhead? Well, it depends on what you mean by Godhead. If you mean the, the three beings who have eternally been in the Godhead, then we're not in the Godhead because we haven't eternally been in the Godhead in terms of backwards eternity. Once we fully accept the loving relationship, we participate fully in everything that the Godhead is, has, and does. And so there's no distinction. The only distinction is that we haven't been in the relationship from all eternity because we made different choices. So we participate fully in the Godhead. We're no different than the Godhead. They're not above us. We're not below them. There's no power. There's no knowledge. There's nothing that they are that we would not be. There's nothing that they have that we won't have. Everything that God has, he'll give to us. Everything that he is, we will be. And everything that the Father is, we will be. Everything that the Father has, he's offered to give to us. And so we will fully participate in everything to the same extent as the Father. There's no distinction. The only distinction is one of, in this case, temporal priority, but also a logical priority, in that it's God who's lovingly undertaking to teach us how to love one another, to bring us to be in relationship with Him. 
we owe him a great debt of gratitude. We may from all eternity be intransigent. We may say, sorry, not for me. And he's not going to force us. In fact, he can't force us because the nature of divine love can't be forced in that sense. So God couldn't force us to be gods. He couldn't force us into the relationship. All he can do is invite us. But he's done more than that. He's undertaken to give us an exemplar who teaches us and shows us what divine love and full humanity is like. Not only does he do that, he enters fully into the mortal life to do it. But not only does he do that, he gives us a plan and commandments to teach us through tough experience how to overcome our walls and intransigence and alienation and isolation that we insist upon so that we can learn to love each other in this way. We have a lot to learn to have the capacity to fully love, it appears. They already had the full capacity, in a sense. So maybe there's a distinction that way. Why did they have the full capacity and we didn't? They had a greater intelligence from all eternity. They had greater intelligence than we did. There's a full range of intelligences. And the fact that one intelligence is more intelligent than another, there will always be another intelligence more intelligent than that. But God is the greatest intelligence of all. And so when it came to capacity to love, these three had the capacity to love from all eternity. We still had a lot to learn about loving because of the level of our intelligence. It's not a distinction in the kind of being we are, because if we had made the choice, and it was open to us to make the choice, it's just that we are intransigent for some reason. We refuse to love in the way that they do. Do we have the capacity to fully love? I doubt that we do. I think we still have a lot to learn from experience to be qualified to have the capacity to love in a divine way. That's what we're here learning. So is there a distinction? Yeah, the distinction is one of intelligence. It's one of intelligence in terms of learning to love one another, and we've got a lot to learn. So would you say that I'm thinking how we would not or how we would choose not love or choose not to love in the pre-mortal life? Would it be we didn't have the capacity for that love? We didn't necessarily not choose the love. We just couldn't choose the love because we didn't have the capacity? Combination of both. Some may have had the capacity but didn't so choose because they were free. Others may not have had the full capacity to love in that sense because they lacked the intelligence in terms of experience to learn how to love in order to be able to do it. God has instituted a plan whereby he can teach us how to be like he is. And so he's undertaken to lovingly send his son to show us what that looks like, to participate fully in our mortal condition so that we can say, oh, look, that's what divine love looks like. That's how it's done. And he gives us enemies who can challenge us, people who can teach us what it's like to love, even when it's really difficult to love. And he sends us families that give us the experience of being godlike, give birth to people in our own likeness and image who at some point are going to look at us and create real problems for us. Because our, it, when we have kids, they're going to force us to learn things we don't want to learn. Every parent knows that. Kids are great teachers, and there's nothing that approaches godhood more than parenthood in terms of human experience. So we have this entire plan set up to teach us how to be gods. In other words, to have a fullness of joy and to live after the manner of happiness. And God has instituted that. So we owe him a great debt of gratitude. Not only is he prior to us in terms of the times in which he chose to be fully loving and the capacity to be fully loving, we also give him honor and glory because not only is he undertaken to put together this world and to create the opportunities for us, they were willing to become mortal so that they could participate in our experience. And the son was willing to bow below all things in terms of human suffering to fully participate in our condition. 
So God is a hands-on God. He gets down in the mud, the blood, and the particularity of human life in order to participate in it fully. This is a part of the Mormon Christology as well. Now, let me say this. We haven't even begun in Mormon Christology. All we've done is define the divine conditions of the divine relationship as a beginning to be able to understand it. But this discussion, the first part of this chapter about Mormonism, is a very large discussion. And so we can get into the logical questions about what it is for Christ to be fully human and fully God now, whereas before we were merely setting up the Mormon commitments that are the basis for discussing the Mormon Christology. And with that, I'm going to have to end because I've taken too much time already. So, like I said, we've kind of digressed into a discussion to make sure that we understand that we're all kind of understanding what the commitments of Mormonism are as far as understanding God and the relationship of divine persons. And like I said, next week we're going to go into the different questions of Christology distinctly. And yeah, we'll just leave it at that. So, till then. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.